Hi, I'm Audrey Bellis, and you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon Español. We tell stories about fierce, femme, leaders, and activists of color bettering our worlds. Let's get started. So we are here on this episode uh, with somebody that I can already tell that I love because one, she knew what I was talking about when I said, you know, the New York Greek coffee cups from like Law and Order. And she's like, yes. Uh, Number two. Well, I mean, number one, you like Law and Order. That's just amazing. And two, she agrees with me that Return of the Mac is up there (laughs) as one of the all time greatest hip hop songs. It is only number two to me next to No Diggity. Cannot lose my no diggity status, but we are here with the founder of the Ethiopian Diaspora Fellowship. Welcome to Brown Girls Rising. Hello, hello, hello. We are so pumped to have you. Tell our audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what the Ethiopian Diaspora Fellowship is. Sure. My name is Reddy Tacosta, and I am the founder and currently the executive director of Ethiopian Diaspora Fellowship. Ethiopian Diaspora Fellowship is a six-month service-oriented fellowship for Ethiopian-American diaspora. So diaspora for us, it can mean... You know, it can be widely defined, but we define them as first or 1.5 or second generation Ethiopian Americans. Um, all young professionals, we open up applications, we send them to Ethiopia and partner them with our partner organizations in all different fields. And they live there for six months, work there for six months, um, and get trained on our three pillars, which are leadership, service, and creative storytelling. Okay, I have to ask this. What is 1.5 generation? Because yeah. like, I'm a first generation child, but I now want to be 1.5 because <laughs> I need to know what it is and what qualifies you if I can claim it. Yes, I appreciate, I appreciate that. So there's first generation people that came from another country, right? And then you have 1.5 people that came from another country, but they were 10 years and younger. So they have this oh. like dual generation, right? They're both. And then second generation are people that were born here to migrant, like immigrants, right? So right. I'm... Technically 1.5 because I came to America when I was three. So I think there's, I think the cutoff is 10 years old. Like if you come under 10 years old based on like migration research. And that's because your teenage informing years, you are in this other country in America. So it forms you in some way, right? Oh, I don't qualify. Um, but I know I'm plenty sorry. of people that do. I'm like bummed because I really wanted to claim that. I claim a lot of things. That's cool. I claim a lot of things. I'm not either. That's mine. <laughs> Man, now I'm really bummed, but I do know a lot of people that would yeah. that that would apply to, and I really like that definition of like being able to give that experience for people that are like, well, I'm not quite this, but I'm not quite that, and and just having that space. I think that's so important, and I love that you're about storytelling because obviously this is Brown Girls Rising, and this is about storytelling and telling the stories of what I like to call elevated feminist action, so positive feminist action about women who are driving their community through food, culture, art, organizing as it comes to rallying other people through their business. Basically, like what are, it doesn't matter what the medium is, but they're doing something in a positive way to impact their community, whether it's micro or macro. Awesome. And you, duh, are obviously doing <laughs> this and doing it globally. The other thing that I really, really like about this is in Spanish, we have this phrase, ni de aquí, ni de allá, which means... I'm not really from here, but I'm not from there either. And like, for me that I'm Mexican, it's like, well, I was born here and I'm half white 
and have a really white girl name. So like, I'm not considered Mexican by other Mexican standards. I can't go to Mexico and call myself Mexican. And then I'm here and they're like, well, you're not Mexican enough. So I'm like, mm. just not enough of anything. Hundred percent. And so I'm curious, like how you came up with this idea, because it feels like you're really helping other people reconnect with their roots and the fact that you do it through what I think is the most important way of keeping traditions alive is storytelling and helping them bridge that gap between like, how can you be better culturally acclimated in learning the stories of where you come from and how that shapes who you are? Yeah, I think that's the point you just made, which is like, you're not really that, you're not really this, is the precipice of the whole organization. So I'm Ethiopian born, but I grew up in Iowa, which is like as American as you can be. Um, And I never went back to Ethiopia until I was 20. And when I went back, there was this light bulb moment where you land in a country where everybody looks like you, which is something that I'd never seen before ever, ever in my life. And that was this a little bit chaotic identity crisis moment because then I came back to school in Arizona and nobody looked like me anymore. And so I think this is just, I mean, this is a narrative that a lot of people feel like the, this idea of I'm not this, I'm not that, but I never fit in anywhere. Um, and so that really drove me to figure out like, what do I do with that? Um, after I graduated college, a couple of years later, I actually went and lived in Ethiopia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I lived there for a year. I went for three months and I just never came back, which is (laughs) kind of like what people end up doing, right? Yes. So I lived there for a year. When I came back here, I heard a lot of other Ethiopian Americans with this story. And even outside of the Ethiopian American story, it was like Nigerians or Mexicans or Jamaicans. Everybody had this bicultural experience. And for me, it's like when our stories are so similar, they're shared experiences, there has to be something we can do about it. Um, And for I, I can only focus on what I know. And I know the Ethiopian American story. So that's why the organization is specific to Ethiopian Americans, right? So what we did is I did some nerdy research in grad school and it was just about how do countries develop. And one of the main points is they need to have a good relationship with their diaspora, with people that are not in country, right? Right. Um, Ethiopia really doesn't. If you just look at without getting into the politics of it, they don't have a good relationship with the country. So I thought we'd start with the generation I know, which is mine and a little bit younger. And we wanted to, we sent out a survey and we thought 200 people would fill it out in three weeks. And it was on Twitter and Facebook. It wasn't like that. I mean, it wasn't that um, serious. We did it through a survey software, but we had just through our network and we had 396 people fill it out in two and a half weeks. People we don't know from all over America and getting the survey results and seeing 76% of this generation would go back and even serve for free for three months was something that just led us to say, we have to do something about this. It would be irresponsible not to answer this call. Does that make sense? It's like birthright. Yeah, it's very similar. Like, I'm trying to think of my own birthright experience, and they were just trying to marry me off. That's really (laughs) what they were doing. They were like, welcome to the motherland. Let me remind you of your obligations. I'm pretty sure some parents try to make their kids sign up for that very reason. Yeah, it's a lot. It's similar to birthright. We, you know, we, we talked to birthright, Fulbright, Peace Corps. There are a lot of organizations that yeah. do, like Oxford, Rotary, a lot of people. Yeah. Indie Corps was another organization. Oh my gosh, now that you're saying that, you're 100% right. And I only ever think of Birthright because that's, you know, I had a lot of friends that also did Birthright. But yeah, you're, oh my goodness. I, I did not think, realize that so many organizations actually do that. That's yeah. so true. There's something about being in country that changes your experience and yes. understanding of the culture, right? There's like, it, it builds this 
I mean, a lot of our fellows will say, I understand my parents better. I understand Mm -hmm. my culture better. I understand myself better. And like, of course they have some identity crisis while they're there. But I mean, this whole idea is that we need to be empowered by being both cultures. It, It can't be seen as like a negative thing for us just because like you said, you're not all the way Mexican, you're not all the way American, you're not all the way this, instead of seeing it as that, is you're both. And what is like powerful about you being both? What's powerful, for example, is you can relate to me even though we're from two different cultures. You totally understand and share my experience, right? So you are, and this is obviously I'm biased, you are better off than someone that doesn't have this bicultural experience. Oh, I agree. I 100% agree. Um, Because I've dated people that don't have like a multicultural experience and they're very narrow and sheltered in what they do know. And it only goes one of two ways. You're either excited to learn about something else or you're like, I don't know it. It's different and I don't like it. Right. (laughs) With that voice. Exact voice. With that voice. That is the only voice I've heard. (laughs) And it's hard to be in that experience. And it then becomes a like, will I put up with this? And for me, it's no, not never. Yeah. Like if you aren't embracing of what, and I'll give you an example, even, even on the religious side, like I grew up in an interfaith household. My mom's Catholic. My dad's Jewish. Okay. Like they're complete opposites. Yeah. I dated a Jewish guy who was point blank. Like if you don't go, go full Jewish, like I cannot live with myself to incorporate any part of your Catholic upbringing or experiences or holidays in my household. And I'm like, well, this is not going to work. Yeah. Like you're telling me you're open-minded, but that's a lie. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't work that way. No, not at all. And being closed off to that. And I think for me, so I was so naive because I grew up in a mixed household, like, um, And because it worked, I just assumed that everybody was like that and everybody was so tolerant and exploring of other people's things. Like my Mexican cousins would eat latkes and, you know, like it was just a thing that crossed over. Yeah, Went to quinceañeras and bat mitzvahs and that's just what you did. That's so interesting. And like I thought everybody did Chrismaca. I didn't know other people (laughs) didn't do it because all my Mexican cousins would come over for Chrismaca because that's just, we had a blended family. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got older where I was like, oh, People are not like this. They think it's weird. Yeah, that is so interesting. Oh, and I think I'd go a step farther saying that you more likely and anyone that is has this experience can walk into a room of all one culture, one, and totally fit in and figure it out and be empathetic and understanding. And you can, you know, code shift, right? Like you can go into another room and be a completely oh, yes. different way to present yourself and understand that. And that is powerful, but it's only powerful if you know that about yourself. Yes. So the fact that once you realize that not everybody's like that no. at all, I think that that's what we're trying to do with our fellows, right? They come into the program and they might have some understanding of it because they've applied, right? But what we want is when they're done with the program before they become alumni, understand their power in that. And that is also, it's not only like a cultural thing, but personally, how are they developing? Like, how are they seeing themselves? How are they going into interviews and seeing that this is an added skill and added value that they bring to the table? Yeah, I really like that. I'm curious for you, what was it like growing up in Iowa? (laughs) Because when I think Iowa, I definitely think Iowa caucus. Yes. And we are in a post-Trump election can I say life? Yes, you yeah, can okay. say we talk about we talk about this a lot here. But I'm curious what that what that upbringing was like for you. Talk about like growing up and not seeing a lot of people that you know shared your experiences, right? Yeah. And then I'm sure people even just like lump you into categories and go, 
oh, well, you're black. And you're yeah. like, you know, we hear that even with Afro-Latinas where yeah. they're like, people just, ident- I have a good friend. She's from the Dominican Republic and okay. everybody identifies her as black here. And she's like, I don't identify as black at all. Right. I'm from the Dominican Republic. Yeah. I'm a Latina. Yeah. And people look there at her and they're like, no, you're just black. And she's like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Totally get that. So yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, I yeah, I didn't identify as African-American black at all because I didn't have that experience in my house. We right. ate Ethiopian food and we spoke a different language and you know that was what was my house and then outside of my house my town was like 98 percent white 98 or 99 percent white so all of my friends were white um my network was white I didn't know anything outside of white the town right next to us had African-Americans and I just didn't relate with them and I didn't go over there I didn't see it my parents worked with all white people and that's that was my initial experience growing up and they saw us they didn't see us as black they saw us as African only because any race issues they had they didn't want to bring it to us so I mean I had a point in eighth grade and these are I grew up with the same people right, right. and so at a point in eighth grade when I had a really good friend that you know I'd gone to school with his kids since I was in first grade say, you know, I don't like black people, but I really like your family, which I'm, I'm 13. So I don't like know how to respond to that 13 and not woke and like not cultured yeah. enough to understand yeah. how to respond. And I was like, Oh, okay. And my curiosity was, why don't you like black people? And you know, like kind of separating myself at that point. And right. he had some story about this person robbed me and so on. And so some really just Yes, right? Right. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's great. And I took that as the experience, like closed that door and was really glad this dad liked me. Um, And when I got out of Iowa and I went to Arizona for college, I realized I was black. There was like a light bulb moment where I'm like, hey, I'm black. So what does that mean? Because that's how you are, not only what you think you are, but how others view you, right? So even if I didn't think I was in whatever culture, when I went to a new area, people viewed me as an African-American. And that that made sense to me. Of course you'd view me that way. So how can I, you know, figure out this dissonance in my mind and like, what, what does that mean to me? Right. So I think the advantage of growing up in Iowa was I did have this like small town experience. Everybody knew everyone is very collectivist culture, which is similar to Ethiopian culture. The disadvantage is I had no idea who I was if it came to like race or ethnicity, anything like that. And so I was a much later bloomer (laughs) than most people. Um, but it allowed me to share experiences with people and understand like what it means when they're not, you know, understanding of their own identity. Oh, I bet. So what is it like to then, cause you said you were about 20 when you went back or in yeah, your twenties. Yeah. Um, so what's it like then to go to a place that you've never previously experienced and you're like, oh my gosh, I get it now. I get it. I fit in. Like you were saying, everybody looks like me, but was it what you expected? Was it like how your parents described it? Or like, I'll give you an example. Like my mom's Mexican. My mom grew up in Mexico. She came here when she was like in middle school. And when I asked my mom about growing up in Mexico, her response is always, we left there. We're here now. (laughs) That's it. Like it's not a, it's not a, it's, it's not even trauma. It's just like, we've moved on from that. There's no need to be reminiscent or move backwards. You mm. just move forward. Yeah. Right. And like, 
And I've seen that with other aunts and uncles who are very much like reminiscent and go back and still yeah. connect with like family that's there. Whereas I have my, my mom and other family members that are very much like, we're here. We left there a long time ago. There's nothing there that ties us. Yeah. It's just done. Everyone yeah. else is here. Why would we go back? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, I think for us, a lot of the Ethiopian Americans that are my parents' age left because of political warfare and stuff. So they're um, asylum refugees. And that's yeah. why they have basically this kind of the same attitude as your mom where they've separated themselves. So when I went back, I hadn't heard a lot about Ethiopia besides the just stories of your family. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it wasn't what I, it was what I expected as in like, oh, it's another country and it's my first time outside of America. But it wasn't because I thought everybody was going to be like my family because that is the only people I know that are Ethiopians, oh, yeah. right? And they're not. So like when there was like a person that stole my phone or like whatever would happen, I'm like, what's going on? This is not what Ethiopians do. <laughs> and like I grew up in a Christian household and there are Ethiopian Muslims and Ethiopian Jewish people. I'm like, wait yeah. a second. I thought all Ethiopians were Christians. So there was that very much like confused because they weren't all like my family. Yeah. And then I didn't fit in, obviously, because I spoke English for the most part. But then there was also this part where we got off the plane. And I remember this because I was listening to music and journaling, like, you know, as you do when you're 19 and 20. And we landed and it's you. it smells different. It feels different. And we got off the plane. And right when we got off the plane, there are 20, 25 people waiting for us. And these are all considered family members. I don't remember any of them because I was three when I left and they're bawling as they're looking at my sister yeah. and I and like calling us by our nicknames and saying, oh my gosh, you've changed and all this stuff. And for me, these people that are technically strangers are hugging me, but they are loving on me. Like I've never been loved on before because they have that connection, you know? Right. So I think that, that was... That was a point in my life where I realized that like that type of family, they, it, it could be 20 years, it could be 10 years, could be whatever. But like that connection made me feel Ethiopian. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and I'm sure like things like Facebook yeah. help now. Now, yeah, right? definitely. Because like I'll get friend requests from like the daughter of a cousin <laughs> who was divorced from this person. And they're like, oh my God, I'm your family. And you're like, Probably. I'll believe it. I'll, I'll believe take it. it. Looks about right. We got enough mutual friends. I think so. Please don't catfish me. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that really creates these like, okay, so for example, I have a cousin named Gabriela. We're about the same age. Mm -hmm. We met like twice when we were like under the age of 10. Okay. And we were in somebody's quinceanera together. And, but we look alike. Oh, interesting. We have a lot of very similar features and we like very similar music. Oh, and weird. we're not like, we've never seen each other as adults, but like I'll see her stuff on Facebook and I'm like, oh, she gets me. She's like me. That's and, so interesting. And I think that without social media, there's some gaps like that where I would like, I would never remember her if it wasn't for those experiences and like, because somebody's mom somewhere posted a photo of us from like 1989 and you're just like, <laughs> all right, we had matching outfits. Thanks for that. Yeah. And exactly. I'm covered in mosquito bites because it was like the one time I went to Mexico and I'm like. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think Facebook, I mean, social media, love it or hate it, but that it's, it's changed the way the immigrant community lives and yep. it, it c connects this connects us with people that we would never have connected to before. I mean, when we were younger, it was letters. My mom would receive a letter and one letter would be, these people died, these people got married, these people had kids. And in one letter, she would experience a year of life, right? Now oh. something happens and it's like automatic. We all are all in a Viber group, right? Yes. Like my family from Ethiopia in here, we're all in one Viber group. So so-and-so graduated. Immediately, we're getting pictures yeah. of the graduation. But I can't, I mean, 
the way my parents struggled, now I understand it more than I ever have. Yeah, that's funny. You mentioned that about the letter. We have one uncle on my dad's side who they send a family newsletter every year. And my mom's always like, that's because they're white. Nobody else sends <laughs> you that. That's My mom's forever like, that's because they're white. Like when I told my mom, mom, I'm going through a depression. I'm going to go find myself. She's like, I, hija, that's your white side. Yeah. That is a hundred percent your white side. Yes. I Thanks, mom. It. Thanks. I'll take it. Probably. I'll take it. I'm gonna I'm gonna claim that privilege for just a minute to go self indulge in my you pray love moment. Oh yes. <laughs> I feel like any moment abroad now, everyone if you're like a woman, they're like, oh you pray love. I'm like, stop it. I'm just trying yes. to eat. Like nothing else. That's so interesting to me. And because you're right, I think we all have to go kind of have this find ourselves moment. And there is something about like exploring your roots and where you come from to understand better who you are. Yeah. And I love this idea of storytelling across generations because, you know, you think of like from a cultural anthropology point of view, that's how things are passed down is exactly. through storytelling. Yep. And I think of some of the most poignant moments in my own life and family memories are all through somebody sat you down and told you the story of this. My favorite are like, I hate to say this, but funerals. So we have, for example, and and this is going to sound horrible, guys. I'm sure you'll make it better. I'm (laughs) I'm sure you'll make it better. My mom's half-brother just recently passed away and we were at the funeral and we hadn't seen family. We, We saw family that we hadn't seen like in forever since my mom was a little girl that didn't even know was already here. And the stories that come out of those, and I feel like weddings, you hear stories, but it's mostly the positive things. Funerals are the place where people really come together and it's people that you haven't seen in a really long time because they feel very obligated to go. And you hear these like deep family stories because who's going to come to a funeral besides family? Yeah. And you hear things that you would have never, like I learned so much at this last funeral that I was like, oh my God, I never knew that. I never knew that. Wait, we're related to them and them on both sides? It was a very small town. What? (laughs) What? Like... You're like, and everyone in the room's your cousin somehow. Yeah. And you're just like, how did this happen? Yeah. But there's something about that in funerals where like these stories come out and you're like, why don't we have records of this? Mm. Like, like somebody needs to write this down. Otherwise, the next time we're at a funeral, we're going to be sitting here having these again and nobody's. And what happens? The person who's passed away isn't going to be the one to tell us these stories, right? We're getting getting to be older and older. And, you know, for example, my mom's half brother dying was like, Granted, my grandpa had been married three times and my mom's half-brother was two years younger than my grandma because he was much older than – my grandfather was much older than my grandma. So my grandma literally had stepkids that were older than her. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, like my mom's generation, my mom's the youngest of six. They're not really passing away. But like just to think that my mom has siblings that are now old enough to like actually pass away Mm -hmm. from like old age where you sit there and you're like, oh, shit, when did we get old? Or like one of my cousin's kids is just graduated from UC Irvine. And I'm like, I remember when you were born. Like it was a big deal when you were born because her parents were like teenage parents. And we were just like... Like, when did you graduate from college? You can drink now? (laughs) Legally. I used to, like, go drink with your parents when I had a fake ID. That is so funny. When did this happen? Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. I think, I mean, storytelling is obviously important for all of those reasons. And you make, like, a really good point by saying if we're not capturing these stories, what's happening when these people die? Right, exactly. And so... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and recipes. That's the other thing is, you know, we've talked a lot about cooking on this podcast and what it means to like cook with your elders. But, and I always say this, my grandma, um, my grandma oftentimes will pour recipes like 
like if she's adding spices, she pours a mound into her, the palm yeah. of her hand and yep. she pokes it with her finger. She doesn't measure with measuring same spoons. Same here. It's up in the same way. And so, and then she'll put it in. I'm like, grandma, how do you know? And she's like, well, I just know it's just this size of a mound. And I'm like, I'm not going to be able to make this when you die. Like, <laughs> then who's going to cook for me? I'm yeah. literally going to starve. Uh, let me measure your hand, grandma. <laughs> literally. Yeah. I've done that. Uh, yeah. And so- we, one of my mom's sisters was diagnosed with stage four cancer and she oh, went through a very scary like bout last year and, and it was around Thanksgiving and we we're like, well, tia, my tia always makes the yams. Oh no. Nobody makes the yams like she does. If, she, if something happens to her and she was going through chemo at the time that she didn't make the yams that year because she was really sick and we were all like, oh my God, who's going to make the yams? Yeah. This is how, this is how we eat the yams. This yeah. is just how you do it. And it was this like very like. I mean, thankfully she's doing much better now, but at the time it was like, it was like she was dead, but she was alive because nobody made the yams that year. Yeah. Like things like that Our that are connection. so family ties, stories and recipes yeah. where you're like, this is the person, the, the keepers of tradition. Right. That's what I like to call it, right? I we like are the that. keepers of tradition. And yeah. if those traditions don't get passed on, we literally lose them. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and one thing that we do for EDF is one of our, we have assignments throughout the year, but one of our assignments is StoryCorps, like interviewing three different StoryCorps subjects. So I know, do you know StoryCorps is an app, an NPR app and you, it prompts some questions or you can make up your own questions and it records the story and then you can send it to the Library of Congress. And so it lives oh. there for the rest of- forever, I guess. Library of Congress never goes away. So lives there forever. And so we do that assignment. And what we say to them is do one professional interview, and then the two can be personal, family, whatever you want. And what was so interesting, our first cohort, one of the fellows interviewed someone that later, like three months later, had passed away, someone in our family. And so now that interview is in the Library of Congress. It can be, it's recorded, downloaded. And so when she has kids in the future, decides to have kids in the future, her kids can listen to her grandma's story and this interview that she had with her and that just makes me want to go like go interview all of my family yeah. members and do the same thing but I feel like our generation really has this opportunity because we've been handed all of this technology yep. to like we just have to kind of get our shit together and like go do that and if that's making like a family documentary or podcast or you know story court just interviewing them on story court and putting it to the library of congress even having them talk through a recipe something yeah. simple like that um that's like the only way we're going to be able to survive or else everyone else is going to tell our story for us which really the reason storytelling is part of edf is because when you hear about ethiopia especially with the older generations all they talk about is famine and i was mm. so tired of people like saying oh my gosh i mean i've had people ask me like well what was it like to first eat food or what was it like the first time you wore clothes? It's like, like, can I poke you in the eyeballs for fun for yeah, your like, like ignorant comments? Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I wish I did. <laughs> or like, oh my gosh, that scratch on your arm, is that a lion? And these are like real people that are adults. Oh, like they're lion? not, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, definitely lion fight in my house. But like, that's awesome. And so since I was so sick of that and I was so sick of people complaining about that, that is part of EDF, right? Is we're yeah. telling our own story one, because we're sick of other people telling it, but two, because we need to be telling it, right? right? And the only way you can take your power back is if you're telling your own story. I love that. That is so true. Yeah. And so I want to I wanna come back to politics, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, you grew up in Iowa. We are in a post-Trump state. <laughs> I like can't come up with something more eloquent to say about that, quite yeah. frankly. <laughs> and so I'm curious for you, you know, you were saying 
off off air before we started yeah. about like you went through like the Obama administration, now the Trump administration. Yeah. And when I think Iowa, I literally think Iowa caucus. So yeah. like what was what what were the differences like for that? And, yeah. And just being there for those experiences. Yeah. So so just contextually, uh, Iowa went blue, blue, red. So Obama, Obama, Trump, which is so interesting. And most people think the Midwest is very conservative. But as much as we're conservative and there is a lot of religion that plays part, they are as far very high up with education. They like really care about education. What happened was I, I felt like, and I hate saying this, but like it feels different being back in my hometown. And I, I love my hometown. I love my people that still live there. It feels different. My parents actually live, live there now. They moved back there. And some of the things that they're experiencing now, they've never experienced before. Some of the racism they're experiencing now. And you know, that's, there's two things, right? A lot of people said like, oh, that was always there. It was just underneath. And now people feel empowered to say it. Yeah. Right. And I totally believe that. But then I think that there's this second group of people that I would say are part of my network that really do feel like they need someone else to blame and they're not going to blame their own people. So they need someone to blame. They need someone to like put that off. And this is like the idea that they have. Right. And I would also say like, and you know, I'm a Christian, so I can, I feel like I can say this and I don't want it to be too edgy, but like a lot of people have just, a lot of people in Iowa have justified their actions based on religion. So they say, I disagree with everything else he's doing, but we need to go back to God. And like, that's how they've justified voting for him. So they disagree with immigration. They disagree with the education. They disagree with this, but they want someone that was religious in power. And this is, yeah. this is where I feel like people can justify anything that they do. And I watch people go from like a person that I would think would be in my corner for a lot of things. Now I don't really know them. Like I don't feel yeah. like I know them the way I did. Does that make sense? It a hundred percent makes sense. I've unfriended a lot of people that I grew up with or people that I know I thought I knew well, where I'm like the comments, the disparaging comments and the racist things that you're saying, do you not realize I'm one of those people when yeah. you refer to those people? Yeah. Um, I have a very good friend of mine who has worked for some very conservative groups, including the Heritage Foundation. And we used to do stuff together for Catholic charities. We oh, sat on the same like yeah. boards for hospitals and a lot of service things. And I used to always consider her my Catholic friend. So I go to daily mass. Yeah. And I always liked her as my Catholic friend because I didn't have any other friends that were my age that also went to daily mass. Yeah. And that and I love that about her. And she was like half Latina. So oh, we, nice. we were like the same mix. Yeah. And she also looked like a white girl and had a white name, but was like, you know, claimed her, claimed her uh, origins there. And I always thought that we were like kindred spirits yeah. and we were part of the young Republicans together. Wow. And she like has become extremely radicalized oh, and she just doesn't see that. Right. She just really believes that, you know, she's, she's, you know, Latinos for Trump. And I'm just sitting there going like, no, it doesn't work <laughs> that way. And you know, what's interesting is radicalized religion, mm. right? And even as Catholics, she has truly become, I mean, she sits on that fringe, right? And I sit mm. there and I go, did we not go to the same classes together? Like did, when did this emerge? Right. And so I, I, I agree with you that anybody can justify anything. And it is so hard to see people that you think you know and you don't, and they're finding their way in things. And it's like, I don't know how we got here, but I want to get out of here right. as a whole, as a collective. And yeah. really, like you said, take the tools that we have, which are technology um, and access to creating our own communities and really make 
change happen. Right. Because it is incredibly frustrating to watch. And I think what's even more frustrating to watch is like, I'm a Republican that voted for Hillary, but I don't think Hillary was really our best candidate either. Right. Right. And I think that for the first time in American history, at least, okay, for, let me say this, for the first time in my adult voting life where I sat there and I went, I'm now voting for the least amount for what I think will do the least harm. Right. And that's a scary thing, right? right? Like what has happened, what have we done as a Republic to, to not, exalt leaders to truly like step up that'll represent us and where are our millennial politicians right right that really represent our voice and I feel like President Obama for a long time was like this young energetic hopeful like similar to how I describe Mayor Garcetti here in LA now like young enough to still be in tune technology savvy but still had like adult experience some political experience some real world business experience that could still like bring it all together in this perfect storm for exactly what we needed right and I just don't feel like we have that and I'm really hoping as a result, no, because don't. what we're seeing now is a lot of people saying, F this, I'm going to take charge, yeah. screw it. I'm going to get involved in politics. Right. I'm going to make change in my community. And I'm hoping that that's what we're going to see come out of this is something better for our future. Yeah, I agree. I mean, have you looked at She Should Run? It's so interesting. No. There's this like organization that young women are saying like, let me run for something. And they're giving them the tools. Like you can download an ebook of like, how do you run? Like, where do you start from zero? Like you have no Mm. political knowledge and here's what you can do. And I went and I was a facilitator for one of their organizations or one of their, you know, uh, conferences. And it was amazing to see so many women in the room, Republicans, Democrats, independent, whatever you want, saying like, I'm going to run for city council. I'm going to run for the school board. I'm going to do this. And that is from the precipice of what's going on right now, right? So we got one positive. Yeah. We'll take it. We'll totally take it. And potentially for the better. Uh, Yeah. One, I think young people are realizing that like you have to step up. And I think this is what it's all about. Like people like you, people like me, kind of mobilizing our community, like grassroots, and eventually these people will rise up. Well, I agree with you and it has been a pleasure to have you. And I'm hoping that our fellow community members, whether you're Ethiopian or not, or not, and want to follow along with your journey, um, can connect with you. What are the best places that people can find you? Yeah. I mean, you can always go to our website, which is ethiopiandiasporafellowship.org. And my email, all of my, um, everything is on there. And you always can tweet me at Radiate R-E-D-I-A-T-E-T. I love it. And I am at Audrey Bellis. And this has been Brown Girls Rising. We hope this episode has inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and at Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time.